word. Thanks be to God for it. The text, of course, are those last two verses where Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. People of God emergent out of the 16th century Protestant Reformation has come the phrase that we often hear today, or maybe you haven't heard of it before, but it's true. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, by Scripture alone, to God alone belong the glory. These are words, of course, that emphasize the absolute sovereignty of God and the salvation of of chosen sinners. A truth which can be said to have debunked what arose in the 17th century in the Netherlands, perhaps with some of our forefathers, that is to say at the canons of Dort, or at the Synod of Dort, in 1618-19, to counteract the foolishness, the misinterpretation of Scripture, that one Jacobus Arminius, through his followers, because he was already dead, was propagating. Here we stand tonight on the last Sunday evening of October 2022. It was 505 years ago. Tomorrow, what the world will call Halloween, when an Augustinian monk nailed those 95 feces to the church castle door in Wittenberg, Germany, and God used that event to ignite the Great Reformation, which we are part of heritage. And so tonight, I want us to look at these two verses under the sermon theme, Affirming the Gospel as God's power for salvation. Affirming the gospel is God's power for salvation. First of all, note with me the specific conception. Beloved, beginning in verse 1 through 15 of this chapter, read it only in part for time's sake, Paul is establishing his own personal desire his personal wish, if you will, or aim to come to Rome. Capital after all of the first century Roman Empire wasn't the boys and girls and young people. Why does Paul want to come there? Why does he have this, this heartfelt desire to be there? Well, on the one hand, he knows there are believers there. He wishes to share some spiritual gift to them that will be mutually beneficial to him as well as to them. He wants to have another opportunity to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with Jew or Gentile who may not have ever heard yet the message of the gospel. But also, in light of the appeal he had made to Caesar back in Acts chapter 25, verse 11, he wants to have his case adjudicated. 
That meant Paul had to appear in Rome. Paul, by God's grace alone, beloved, is personally convinced of the truthfulness of the Christian faith or the gospel. That's truthfulness. That acceptance by Paul of the gospel had come some years or decades earlier. I'm talking about the confrontation, boys and girls and young people, in Acts chapter 9, between Paul as he's walking that road to Damascus. He has in his pocket, so to speak, credentials from the leaders of Judaism to go to Damascus to arrest anyone who is converted to Jesus Christ, haul them back to Jerusalem, put them on trial before the Sanhedrin. But he meets Jesus Christ, doesn't he? He's blinded, we call the story in Acts. He's converted. He's committed to the gospel. And he's commissioned by Jesus Christ, therefore, to take the gospel into the first century world. Paul, who had, or Saul of Tarsus, who had been an ardent enemy of the church, he hated the Christian community. He despised Jesus Christ. Converted, he sees his need for salvation found only in Jesus Christ. And through him, reconciliation with Almighty God. And therefore, he is wholeheartedly committed to take the gospel throughout the first century world, as he had done to Jew and Gentile. He's preached to Jew or Gentile in Palestine, in Asia Minor, or what we would call Turkey today, kids, in Greece, and now he desires to do the same, hopefully, in Rome. Now, this is the identical gospel a few centuries later which altered the life of a man who was a rebel against God. A man who lived an immoral lifestyle. But in the first or in the fourth century, by God's grace, was converted to become an early church father. I'm talking about Augustine. He was overheard in the 4th century to be singing, Tola Lege, Tola Lege, take and eat. Words that often accompany the celebration of the Lord's Supper. Augustine had a mother who prayed for him. Fervently. Day in and day out. For years. And by the grace of God, the prayer was answered. Later, Augustine writes, he had read the words of Paul in Romans chapter 15, verse, or 13, verses 13 and 14, where Paul writes, and they quote, Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but putting on the Lord Jesus Christ and making no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. 
some 12 centuries later. There's an Augustinian monk in Wittenberg, Germany, who by the grace of God comes to read what we've just read, in particular Romans 1, verse 17 and, uh, 16 and 17. Luther came to express faith in Jesus Christ. He had peace with God. He was struck particularly by the words of Paul where he says, the righteous shall live by faith. And when he stood later before, about five years after, 1517, or maybe it was even four, whatever, as he stood before the Diet of Worms, was asked to recant everything he had written, preached, taught, and had printed. After reflection, he said, I can do no other God helping me. But he was under a ban of excommunication by the existing church of the day in the West, namely the Roman Catholic Church. A powerful church. A church that basically dominated the whole of life, even politically, under the Holy Roman Empire and its government. Luther was changed. What Paul writes in this epistle about sola fidei, that is to say only faith, with basic Christianity 101. The good news we need to be sharing with our neighbors, our Christians, our fellow employees, someone we meet at school perhaps, yes, sometimes even within company school. All about the Son of God. The promised Messiah of the Old Testament. For Paul writes about Jesus Christ throughout this existence as he does other places. Paul begins in chapter 1, verse 18 through the fourth chapter to talk about the extent of the depravity of humanity. That there's only one sacrifice that atones for sin, namely that of Jesus Christ at the cross of Calvary. Begin with chapter 5 through the end of the 8th chapter. He talked about the extent of our salvation in Jesus Christ, that we're justified because of Christ alone. There's nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord, not even death itself. In chapters 9 through 11, Paul talks about the situation of God's dealing, if you will, with Israel, past, present, and future. And then from 12.1 to the end, he talks about how the Christian not only is to worship this one true God, but he must live under the lordship of Jesus Christ, even in light of the persecution and the hatred that the world may, as a government, may throw across our path. So Paul's words in our text, I am not ashamed of the gospel means. I'm not hesitant. I'm not reluctant to proclaim the good news to Jew and Gentile anywhere, even when I get to Rome. Why? What's so important about this gospel? Well, whether one is educated, educated or uneducated. Paul will do the same in Rome. He had done in Jerusalem, in Athens, in Ephesus, or Corinth, 
or elsewhere, wherever he planted the church. Wherever people would listen to his messages, whether they were in the marketplaces of commerce and trade, whether it was in the synagogues of Judaism, whether it was on along river banks where he met people, it's because the gospel is the dynamo, the dynamite, if you will, the power of God unto salvation. Paul had come face to face with Christ and believed it from the roots of his heart. Christ alone paid the price for Paul's salvation. Christ is the atoning sacrifice. Christ is the propitiation for our sins. The message of grace, peace, hope, and reconciliation. It's Christ in his life, his ministry, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his coronation at the right hand of God, and that one day he will come again to judge the living and the dead as we profess it in the word of the apostles. Secondly, the special confession. Again, I ask the question, but what makes this gospel of, of God so special, so unique, so vivid in contrast to the false religions of the first century? Because it is the only message of salvation from sin, of reconciliation with the one true creator God. The God who created us in Adam in his own image and likeness, breathed into us the breath of life and made Adam a living being. The same God in the aftermath of the fall in Genesis chapter 3 had given the promise of the gospel. Proto Evangelium, we call it. Namely, that God would put enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of Satan. That Satan may be bruises heel, but he would crush his head. That's biblical Christianity, beloved. That's the good news. The exclusive proof that man had fallen and was depraved that the fundamental requirement of reconciliation with God is only in then Jesus Christ the Messiah. So what was the dilemma for the unsaved in Paul's generation in the first century, the same for those we meet today who are unsaved. How can I be reunited with this holy, righteous God? Is it by works? Is it by the practice of certain traditions or habits? What the church demands, as the church did in the days of Martin Luther? Is it by living an upright moral life before others that they could pat me on the back? Paul knows. Augustine came to realize. The reformers came to appreciate. Martin Luther came to understand it. All those practices will not atone for one sin and gain you entrance into eternity. For one is justified only through Christ's sacrifice, through the working of the Spirit within the individual. That was the question that faced Martin Luther in the 16th century. He didn't have peace in his 
God. He went to confession. He self-sacrificed what he thought the church would require. He made a, an excursion trip all the way from Wittenberg to Rome. He climbed those sacred steps, supposedly. He said all the prayers, and he came back and said to the Father Confessor, I still don't have peace with God. What do I do next? Finally, the Father Confessor said, Well, maybe you better turn to Scripture. Huh? Paraphrasing. They say, Man, you sure had it wrong. That should have been the beginning point. But Luther went and he studied Scripture, and he did come by God's grace to Romans 1 16 and 17. What was true then is still the truth of today. It's the blood of Christ. That's what Saul of Tarsus came face to face with when he met the voice of Jesus. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute? Who are you, Lord? I'm Jesus of Nazareth, whom you're persecuting. You see, what are we here today? I'm okay, you're okay. Just allow me to do what I please morally or in any other respect. It's the health and wealth gospel that's making a penetration in some corners of evangelical Christianity. I wonder sometimes if it hasn't made inroads other places as well. But you see, the gospel contradicts the foolishness of positive thinking, of Eastern religion philosophy. It contradicts what one of the major cults claims when it says, well, we're part of evangelical Christianity. No, not if you deny the Trinity. Or I can just be a nominal member of the church and maybe come for Christmas and Easter. And throw a few coins in the in the coffers, and I'll be saved. No, it doesn't work that way. Key word is the power of God unto salvation. The glorious power of God is evident in Exodus 15, verse 16. The irresistible power of God. Deuteronomy 32, 39. The incomparable power of God in Psalm 98, verse 8. The effective power of God as is explained to us in Isaiah 43, verse 13. And the sovereign power of Almighty God in places like Jeremiah 10, verse 12, and 27, verse 5. It is faith alone apart from work. Faith is to wholly trust in God alone. I said only trust. Only in God. Isn't that what Paul writes to the Ephesians? Chapter 2. Faith not of yourselves, but the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Or to the Philippians in Philippians 2. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, because it is God who is at work within you, both the willing to do according to his What does it demand? What it demand of Luther? What it demand of Augustine? Or any of the re other reformers? Or of you and me? Rejection of self-goodness and acceptance total depravity. 
that self-works or good works will not merit me God's eternal favor. And it's not a matter of a free will where we choose for or against God. That's the Armenian error of the Synod of Dortrich that was rebutted there beautifully. It's a denial of everything except salvation by grace through faith in God alone. What is David write in Psalm 51, verse 5, Behold, I was not only born in sin, I was conceived in sin. Paul writes in Romans chapter 3, For all sin and fall short of the glory of God. All! It's only God who imputes that justification to us. And for Him, and to Him, we are to give all our praise and honor and glory. Thirdly and finally, note with me the singular confinement. If you've ever been confronted by an ardent Armenian, someone who, as I remember from my youth, the two Baptist uncles, in quoting Schofield's Bible, will say, well, your belief in the absolute sovereignty of God makes you a robot or a puppet dangling on the end of a divine string, as they often said in those days to me. You must choose. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. I said to one of my uncles on an occasion, why do you take that out of context? You don't say that to an uncle, or to a an uncle, do you? Yeah, this one did, that say. But it was true. I said, you're taking it out of context. I said, what do you mean? I said, what's the conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus earlier in that chapter? Except a man be born again, born from above, born by water and the Spirit, he cannot see, nor will he enter the kingdom of heaven. I said, until you get that one straight. Then you can get John 3, 16, 17, and 18. Not you or me choosing God's offer of salvation. God in grace and faith. Paul, here in verse 17, quotes from Habakkuk 2, verse 4b. But the righteous shall live by faith. Powerful word. The righteous. Now Paul is quoting an Old Testament prophet, boys and girls, young people, congregation, who came upon the scene during the reign of one of the final kings of the southern kingdom of Judah, Jehoiakim. A man who looked around him in, the, in that century and saw leaders and people in contention. Strife, that violence was running rampant. And he says, in effect, to God as a question, why do you allow this? How can you, as the covenant God, allow this to take place? And God says, I'll take care of it in my time. Habakkuk, I will send the Chaldeans, or what we know as the Babylonians. 
Babylonians, they're worse than we are. Really? But what about us? They'll take the southern kingdom into captivity. How we know, of course, if you read the book of Daniel, that the day would come when God would use the Medes and the Persians to overthrow the Babylonian dynasty. And eventually the Jews would go back because of that promise God made in Genesis 3 of causing division between the seed of the woman and the faith. The righteous shall live by faith. We know that Jesus came. He ministered. He died. He arose. He ascended to heaven. He's seated at the right hand of God and one day he'll come back again to conclude human history and usher in the new heaven and the new earth. The righteous shall live by faith. Now Luther had peace with God. Now he begins to comprehend but you know, boys and girls and young people congregation, and I believe it was 1520, Luther stood before an open bonfire in Wittenberg, Germany. Now he had received from Pope Leo X of the powerful Roman Church a papal encyclical. It said, Luther, you've got so many weeks or months to recant. If you don't, we will excommunicate you and your soul will burn in the fires of hell eternally. On that occasion, before standing before that open fire, Luther took out that papal encyclical just before he dropped it in the fire and let it burn. He quotes the words of Paul in Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Pope couldn't do that. But Luther would be hounded after the diet of worms for the rest of his life because he dared to stand up to the church of his day. Now let me ask you as I've asked myself. Upon what do we pin our hope for eternity? Church tradition? Habit? Custom? Sacrament? For Luther there were seven of them. Now if you want me and have seen me and have heard me long enough, you know I hold to the traditions, of course, of the Protestant Reformation close to my heart. Make no apology for it. Won't compromise for the sake of expediency or acceptance. But I've met people who had their name on the roll of the church somewhere. Been in church on Christmas and Easter, but never in between. Oh, mom, dad told me 
but he paid, he, he tithes. Why isn't he in church? You know, kind of him and Paul around. I finally said, no. He received that letter because he must get right with God. You have somebody in your family? We and ours? Who's hardened against the gospel? Some young person who never would make profession of faith. They want to sow their so-called wild oats. Mom, Dad, keep praying for them. That's what Augustine's mother did. And God, by grace, caused her to see her son's conversion. On Judgment Day, we have to plead the merits of Christ, right? Christ alone. It's by grace alone, through faith alone, Christ alone, through Scripture alone, and to God alone be the glory and the honor and the praise. The world will be celebrating Halloween tomorrow night. What about you? What about me? Amen. Heavenly Father,